You are listening to Rav Cook on the Haggadah with Yiska Smith, a podcast series from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, visit elmad.pardes.org. Welcome to Jewish Soul Food, providing spiritual food and nourishment to the soul, where we may encounter the divine presence within and perhaps hear the soul's unique, still small voice, Hakol Dimamadaka, gently leading and guiding each of us on the sweet path of authentic living. <clears throat> Currently, we are exploring some of Rav Cook's illuminating insights on the Haggadah Shal Pesach. The focus will be on moving from the space of spiritual enslavement to freedom, from a place of scarcity to one of abundance, and from a limited consciousness to an expanded one. Last week, we discussed the sign that was part of the tradition, transmitted, actually began with began with the promise from God, from Hashem to Avraham, Pakod Pakadati, where God says, I will surely remember the Bnei Yisrael. And this phrase in the, the oral tradition, the Midrash, teaches us that this was the phrase, this was the sign transmitted from Avraham to Yitzchak to Yaakov to Yosef. Yosef told this to his brothers. <clears throat> The brothers then told it to their children. And then when Hashem appeared to Moshe at the burning bush and informed him that he was divinely chosen to be the redeemer of the Jewish people out of slavery, to redeem them from the Avdut in Mitzrayim, that the reason the elders would believe him when he came back from Midian is because he would say to them, Hashem himself gave Moshe the the sign, Pakod Pakadati, I will surely remember. And that's how they knew, in fact, to believe Moshe. And then we discussed the importance of this double re- the repetition, Pakod Pakadati. The Peshat, as in all cases, when a verb is repeated, when it's next to each other and it repeats itself, we say the word surely in English. So not only will I remember, I will surely remember. <clears throat> However, Rav Yo- Yaakov Moshe Halap, who is one of the outstanding disciples of Rav Cook, explained that there really were two remembrances. There was the rem- remembrance from above and the remembrance from the below. Hence, the repetition of the word pakod pakadati. It's a sign that for the redemption to occur, of course Hashem would remember. However, would we remember? And we talked about the longing, the longing to restore, to reclaim our own identity as a free people. And this, in fact, is what we longed for, and with the longing came came the remembrance. And that really set the redemption into motion. Two words, pakod pakadati. <clears throat> and we talked for a little while about how that really plays itself out in our personal journeys. <clears throat> According to Rav Cook and many, many other Mufarshim, but specifically Rav Cook, since this is who we're discussing in this class, Rav Cook very much taught the importance about being free physical freedom, spiritual freedom, and to long for that usually connotes with most of us that we had that experience once before. And that's, I believe, what Rav Chalop wanted us to focus on, that we were not redeemed in a vacuum. All of a sudden, this enslaved nation is going to be redeemed. It appeared that way, that in one night we all left. 
but what led up to it, that beginning, the very beginning verses in the book of Exodus, the groaning, the moaning, the crying out, that's really what set it into motion. So yes, so there's a place for moaning, and there's a place for groaning, and there's a place for crying out and crying within, where we don't have to accept. We don't have to accept ourselves ever being spiritually enslaved. So I bless you. I bless you with that sense of freedom, that taste of freedom, that you all, that all of us may long to recapture a moment in our lives According to the Midrash, it actually is a moment we all experienced before we were birthed into this world, those nine months from conception to birth. And even after birth, I would not be surprised if all of us have experienced moments, breakthrough moments, where we have, in fact, tasted the sweet taste of really being free to be who we really believe each one of us is meant to be. Okay, in today's class, I'd like to cover a section. It's a very popular section in the Haggadah. It's towards the end of Magid. And it's the, it's the discussion, it's the piece when Rabban Gamaliel, I'll just read it straight out of the Haggadah. You have it there in your text. <clears throat> Rabban, <coughs> Rabban Gamaliel Haya Omer, so Rabban Gamliel, he would say, Anyone who would not say these three things or these three words at the Haggadah, at the Seder of Pesach, that person would not have fulfilled his obligation, her obligation. And what are they? Pesach, Matzah, Umarah. So these are the three entities, the three items that we have to address at the, at the Seder of uh, Leo Pesach. I'm hearing a beeping. Is there a beeping? Or is, is that at my end? There's not any beeping here. where that's from. Okay. So, the first is Pesach. So, what does Pesach mean? What does Pesach mean? So, out of the Haggadah, which I um, printed out for you in the text, Pesach, this is the first of the three. Shehayu avotenu ochlim. This is what our fathers ate. So, this refers to the Korban Pesach. This was the actual offering the very first one was, of course, that night that we were redeemed. But once we left Egypt, then in the Midbarah and in Eretz Yisrael, every Pesach we would offer on the Mazbeach of the Mishkan and then the Beit HaMikdash, the Korban Pesach. Bizman Shebet HaMikdash Hayakayam, during the time of the Beit HaMikdash, we would offer this offering, a special offering called the Pesach, Al Shum Ma. For what reason? What did it signify? Al Shum Shepasach Hakadosh Baruch Hu, and the way we usually translate it, which is hence gives rise to the name of the holiday, is because the Holy One, blessed be He, He passed over Shepasach. He passed over Abate Avotenu B'Mitzrayim. He passed over the houses of our fathers in Egypt. Now, when was he passing over the houses of our fathers in Egypt? When the firstborn of Egypt were being slain. And then we requote the Pasuk from Exodus twelve twenty seven, Yudbet, Chafzayim, Shene'ema, for it says in the Pasuk, Va'amatem Zevach Pesachula Hashem, Ashe Pasach Abate Bene Yisrael Benmatzrayim. So God is saying that I will save the Jewish homes when in fact 
I bring the plague of the firstborn, the slain of the firstborn to the Egyptian. And then when the people heard this, this is in chapter 12, there's a very important chapter in Exodus because it really is the basis. It really sets up the stage, so to speak. It's the plot for that entire time from the 10th of Nisan until when we leave. And when the Jewish people heard that, still in slavery, <clears throat> the nation prostrated themselves. Okay. So you know that we all have this, we're all quick to understand, because it's the Peshat, that the word Pasach, in the Pasuk, hence the name of the holiday, is, hence we say in English, Passover. Passover. That God passed over the homes of the Hebrews, of the Jews, of B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel, and did not, in fact, thank God, <clears throat> include the firstborn of the Jews among this Makot HaBucharot, the slain of the firstborn. However, we have a different understanding. We have a different understanding from Rav Cook. So let's go right into the text. We have a mental picture of the Holy One skipping over the houses of the Hebrews while entering into the homes of the Egyptians and smiting their firstborn. Linguistically, though, it is very difficult to defend this picture. His proof is he brings a text, a pasuk, from the book of Kings 1, 1821. On Har Carmel, the prophet Eliyahu throws down a challenge to the people of Israel. And this is what he says. How long will you waver between the two opinions? If the Lord's is the God, oh, I made a typo, I'm sorry. <laughs> if it is the Lord's, whose God, follow him. And if Baal, follow him. In other words, in the Pasuk, the words, Ad matai atem poschim al You see the word poschim there? The word poschim does not mean pass over. The word here, poschim, means literally waver between, tarry between. Eliyahu Anavi was challenging <clears throat> the Jewish people at that time, many who were guilty of idol worship, and said, look, Hevra, as we say, you can't dance at two weddings. <laughs> you have to decide. If it is the Lord's, if that who is God, then that's who you follow. And if you believe Baal, then that's who you follow. And pay attention. We need to pay it. Rav, Rav Cook is bringing us to really pay attention now to this phrase, Ad matai atem poschim, poschim al Until when are you going to waver? Go between these two places. Now, literally, Rav Cook explains, it means how long will you vacillate between these two thoughts? The trouble was not that the Jewish people were passing over or bypassing the two thoughts, meaning monotheism versus polythe polytheism, but rather that in their minds they would reside at one thought for a while and linger at the other thought for a while. In fact, what Eliyahu was hoping they would do would be, in fact, to pass over the doctrine of polytheism. Avodazara, that's easy for me in Hebrew. <laughs> That's what he was hoping for, but they weren't doing that. They weren't, in fact, passing over. They were vacillating back and forth. So the key words in the Pasuk in Malachim Aleph, 
The key words are poschim al. So it's not passing over, it's vacillating or tarrying or lingering over. So thus, based on a careful linguistic analysis, this is what's the basis of Rav Cook's uh, perush here, is he's going into really examining the, the peshat, the real literal meaning of the word peseach. It makes much more sense that God did not pass over the homes of the Bnei Yisrael at all. In fact, it makes much more sense that God actually visited the houses of the children of Israel in between slaying the firstborn of Egyptian households. This visit, or Pesicha in Hebrew, took the form of Hashra'at HaShchina. This is amazing what he's suggesting. If you go back to the verse in Shema, if you go back to the verse in Shmot, where we quote, "Va'amatem zevach pesachu Hashem," that say to them, "There will be a sacrifice of a pesach to God." Why? We translate it in Exodus as, "For He passed over the houses of Egypt of the of our fathers of the Jews in Egypt." when he was plaguing, when he was smiting the firstborn of, of the Egyptians, that's not how Rav Cook reads it. Rather, he would be going into every home. He'd be going back and forth. He'd go into an Egyptian home and slay the firstborn. But then he would go into a Jewish home. He would go into a Jewish home, and according to Rav Cook, what he did in the Jewish homes was reveal what's called Hashra'at Hashachinah, the revelation, the indwelling of the divine presence. This is what he did. Usually the tradition suggests that the first time as a nation we actually experienced Hashra'at Hashachinah was at Har Sinai. But here what Rav Cook is suggesting, individually, every family or group of small families, because in each tent or in each household, it could have been made up of either the immediate family or the extended family or neighbors, depending on the size. Within each unit, part of the redemption was every unit that was experiencing the eating of the Korban Pesach while the firstborn were being slain, experienced the indwelling, a revelation of the divine presence. And I have to say, I find this to be just so inspiring because for many years I always wondered, what was it like? What would it have been like if I were there? And there I am sitting in this tent with my family as a child, as an adult, as a grandparent, doesn't matter. And I'm eating this roasted leg of lamb. And I hear these cries of anguish all around me in every single Egyptian home. What would that have been like? It always disturbed me. Not that, not that we were spared, and God forbid, that's not what disturbed me, nor that the firstborn were being slain. But what were we experiencing? Pleasure? Sadness? Compassion? Fear? A mixture, perhaps? <clears throat> so what he's suggesting... What Rav Cook is suggesting, based on where did we put the blood? We put the blood on the two sides of the door, or the tent entrance, and the lintel, that cross beam. And we learn, as children we learn, and when God saw the blood at the entrance to the homes of the Hebrews, of the children of Israel, God knew to pass over it. 
And that forces the question, oh, God needed, did really God need to have a sign to know that in that home there were Jewish people? And then the typical, and it's a beautiful response is, of course not. We need the sign. We needed to look at the blood and realized because we were doing what God expected of, of, of us to do, which was to eat this Korban Pesach, that in fact, we would be spared and we would be redeemed. But what Rav Cook is saying here is something so profound that the blood on the sides and on the crossbeam, that these were the physical manifestation of the divine presence. So it could be where, as if God would come into each of the, the Jewish homes, each of the children of Israel's homes, and comfort us with his, with her presence. Actually, there's a transition, because as God is doing what God is doing, it's in the male, but the Shekhinah is always in the female. So when he would enter into the home, he became, he revealed the female presence, and she comforted us. That was the Pasach. That was the Pasach. And it says in the Milchilta, in the, in the Midrash, and in the Talmud Yerushalmi, our fathers had three altars then. Each of our fathers in Egypt had three altars, the lintel and the two doorposts. And we know that just as the Mazbeach in the Beit HaMikdash was the means by which the Shekhinah would always be revealed in the Beit HaMikdash through the Korbanot. So you can see here, we each had our own Mazbeach in our home, at the entrance to the home. So it's far from the Peshat. It is so far from the Peshat that in fact God did not pass over the home of the children of Israel. To the contrary, at each entryway to every Jewish home, Hashem entered and revealed the presence of her Shekhinah. So the resting of the divine presence was all the more remarkable because it didn't take place in the Midbarah with the Mishkan. It didn't take place in Yerushalayim at the Beit HaMikdash. It took place in the very middle of Mitzrayim, sandwiched in the very midst of the impurity of Egypt, in such a place of Tumah, such a place of cruelty, of idol worship, of the denial of the one God. There is where we experienced the Shekhinah. So I ask you, I invite you to consider in your own journey as you feel you're leaving your own Egypt and you feel your own Egyptians are being slain, as you may be experiencing different emotions because it's not, clearly it's not black and white. Why do you think we would need Shekhinah, the Hashra'at HaShekhinah, the actual indwelling, the revelation of the indwelling of the divine presence. And what what is Rav Cook messaging here? That this happened not at the Mishkan in the Midvar, not at the tabernacle in the wilderness, and not in the Beit HaMikdash, in the holy place of Har Habayat, but it happened in the middle of Egypt. What does that message to each of you. So, you know, one of the things I've always wondered and, and learned with you, you can't hear me? A little louder, if you could. One of the things I've always wondered was, you know, you know how hard it is to leave the safety of a place, even if it's a horrible place. It is what's known, right? Um, and I've always... I've thought I've thought about a lot about what was going on inside for you know uh, for the for the Jewish people to be able to make that leap and 
and trust and, you know, go into this place of utter uncertainty and, and how much fear that would have brought, right? So this helps me understand that a little bit better, that somehow there was this inspiration, there was this experience that stayed mm. with the people that mm. were able, almost like this, you know, um, whatever it was. <laughs> who, can, who can even begin to describe that? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Inspiration. And, 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 to, and to further expand with this, the, the way you just have so beautifully articulated this, this was not done en masse, like at Har Sinai. This was intimate. This was personal. Hashem entered each private home, which means the way each one of us, how I understand it, the way each one of us, if there's a thousand of us in this room, I mean, if there's a thousand of us in the community and we live in a thousand different homes, the way each one of us experience it, it is in an intimate subjective, visceral. This is a visceral, this is an imminent experience of God. This is not hearing like at Har Sinai, when what does the Pasuk say? They heard the lightning and they saw the thunder. I mean, everything defied human nature there. I mean, it was a cataclysmic, spiritually, it was a cataclysmic event. This was very, this was different. So each one of you here are coming out of your own Mitzrayim, you experience your fears, your the unknowns, the unease that accompanies that differently. But there is the Shekhinah right there for you. It's such a different meaning of the holiday. It's such a different meaning of the holiday. We needed Hashrachah. According to Rav Cook, this is something we needed. We needed this. It's almost as if we couldn't have left. A little bit, a little bit louder, please. Could you repeat that? It's as if we couldn't possibly have had the courage to do what was commanded of us had we not felt this inner um, presence that was giving us the courage to move forward. Yes, I, I would. Yes, that's how I understand it too. As much as in a cerebral way we wanted to leave, as much as we understood logically this was for, of course, for our benefit, not to have to be slaves anymore. Who would argue that? In our hearts, though, when it came down to it, when it really came down to that moment, how could we not have been gripped by some degree of anxiety or insurity, if not outright fear, at the same time of hearing the wailing, the wailing of all the Egyptians crying for all their firstborn who were being slain at that time. It had, it had to have an effect on our hearts, even if we believed in our minds this was acceptable and had to be. These were human beings. Our, our forefathers that we talk about, let's be careful not to deify them. These were men and women and children and grandparents who endured slavery and lived as slaves. And now look at what they're experiencing. How can it not be traumatic? This is what the, the PSS addresses this a lot. How could it be anything but traumatic? You had said at, at a different time that there were Israelites who chose not to go, who stayed behind. So, what, which was new to, new to me at the time you taught us that. So, what, what was going on with them? Or how, what can we think was going on with them? There is a midrash that suggests in Parshat B'Shalach, which happens after, as we were come, after we came out, that the first verse says that the the verse in that parsha says that we came out chamushim, that the Bnei Yisrael came out chamushim, and the literal meaning, the way Rashi and most 
Peshat commentaries explain that is we came out armed. Why did we come out armed? What, sl- what slave population has armed, has weapons? Because during the plague of darkness, we were able to go into the Egyptian homes. We were able to see where all their gold and silver was. So hence, remember what we talked about two weeks ago, when Hashem said to Moses, please beseech the, Hebrew, the Jewish people to ask of their neighbors for the silver and gold. We knew already where it was. We also knew where their weapons were. So we pretty much emptied out the Egyptian homes of their arms, of their jewels, of all their precious items. And that's why the Pasuk was able to say we came out armed. Now the word chamushim, though, according to the Midrash, now this is an interpretation. And it's a very accepted, it's, you know, there's a lot of Midrashim. This is a very normative midrash. It's accepted by a lot of mainstream interpreters. The midrash postulates that in fact it means a fifth came out from the word chamesh, which means five. So chamishi is fifth. So a fifth came out. It's not that we didn't come out armed. The midrash does not contradict the peshat. It just adds meaning to the peshat that not only did we come out armed, (coughs) but we came out a fifth of the population. Because right before the plague of darkness, that's when it became evident that we were going to leave. That in fact, remember, the plague of darkness was the ninth plague. It was really clear we were leaving. That's when approximately... And I don't know how the Midrash knows this, but this is the 80-20 or 20-80 relationship that we see in life. This is the origin of it. This is the source of it. That if you put 100 people in a room and you give them all the same opportunity, 20% of the people, 20 people will succeed and 80 people won't. And it's used a lot in business. It's used a lot in, we see it through history. It just plays itself out anthropologically sociologically, it's called the 80-20 relationship. This is where historically we first see it, that 80% of the Hebrew slaves at that time realized what was going to happen and thought better of it and said, on second thought, we don't, we don't want to go out into the unknown Midbar because the Midbar represents wilderness, a place that's not known for having water, a place that's not known for growing food, a place that's shelterless, and approximately 80% of the Jewish people at that time, the Bnei Yisrael, said to Moshe, in the Midrash, you won't find a pasuk, this is all interpretation, you know, we don't want to leave. So that's the real reason, or the additional reason, or the deeper reason, why God brought the plague of darkness. Because it's the only plague that did not affect the Egyptians. So much so that the Pasuk says if they were standing, they could not sit. It was so thick. The darkness was so thick that if people were standing, they could not sit. And if they were sitting, they could not stand up. So they literally came out of it the way they went into it. So why was there a plague of darkness then? The eight plagues before literally ruined Egypt, little by little by little. And the Jewish people were never affected by it. So what was the purpose of the plague of darkness, if not to affect the Egyptians? It was one of the reasons, other than we went into the Egyptian homes to see where their silver and gold was kept and where their weapons were kept, was also to allow us to bury the 80% that died during the plague of darkness. Because God felt that if they did not want to experience freedom, when he was giving it to them, they were no longer alive. It was not a punishment. He didn't kill them the way he killed or smote the firstborn of the Egyptians. He realized that they, had, they were no longer alive. If a person can be free and chooses not to be free, they're cutting. It's like cutting the spiritual umbilical cord. So the physical manifestation of this was that they did die and that the 20% buried them in the privacy of just themselves, so the Egyptians did not see this. It was out of respect for kibud hamet, for out of the respect of the dead, 
that they were buried in privacy <clears throat> where it was dark for the Egyptians. So I believe that's what you're referring to. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. This now, now we're left with the 20%, which is where we all come from. Now we're left with the 20% who now at that moment, at that very moment, while we're eat, actually eating the lamb with our loins girded, ready to go, we could have at that moment held back. So <clears throat> it's two different times. One was before the plague of darkness and one was at the very moment of the first Seder. So there was, was, the, was there, is there a sense that in that moment, you know, you, you bring this up in the context of choosing between monotheism and, you know, and, and, and polytheism, right? What, is there a belief that the Jews then in that moment of, you know, experiencing the divine presence made a choice? You know, by le and essentially by experiencing the divine presence and leaving Egypt, they were, you know, behaviorally saying, we believe, you know, we, we're with you. Yes, yes, yes. However, the verse, though, that Rav Cook brings down as a support for the meaning of Pesicha, meaning vacillating or tarrying or going between, referred to much, much later in Jewish history when he was addressing the Jews who were living near what's Haifa today, in Haifa. And they were worshipping Baal then. They were actually idol-worshipping Baal. And that's when he said, how long will you poseach? How long will you tarry between? So what Rav Cook does is take that and refer it to God now, going through this action of pesicha, of vacillating back and forth. It's not to teach us that the Hebrews were vacillating back and forth. However, in your in, insightful words, what one could read, or what I read out of it, or hear out of it is, I would think, if I were there, if I had any doubts, that would confirm, Yiska, do this. You can do this. And I will tell you, in my own journey, that's what I experienced my own experience of Shekhinah inside of me, giving me the strength, giving me the fortitude, giving me the courage to break out and do what for me was completely radical and what for most people in the world would be considered completely radical. And it wasn't just, okay, starting today, I'm, I'm going to go forth. No, it was filled with a lot. And to feel that sense of, well, this is what Hashem wants of me. And if I just really hear the Shekhinah, heed the Shekhinah, the Shekhinah, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And I believe that's what Rav Cook is also teaching here. That's why there was this necessity for Hashrechat HaShekhinah. Because really the 20%, it's like those who have survived, if you can use the word survive, the Holocaust. Uh, there's a lot of, we know that there's a lot of psychological guilt associated with that. Like, why did I survive? Can you imagine these 20%, they had mothers and fathers, they had neighbors, they had children, they had, they had a whole, they had 80% of the community just died because they said, we don't, we're not going with you. How these 20% would have felt just in that moment so we, we all need, we all need, as committed as we may be to whatever it is we're committed to in our journey to become more free, to become more authentic, to become more who we believe God destined for us to be, that does not disallow feelings that would challenge that because we're human and we have all, we, each one of us as a microcosm, is an olam katan. And we, we're very complex beings. So here we see this beautiful, exquisite support. That's Pesach. So I don't know how you'll take that to your tables and translate the Chag Pesach now as Passover. <laughs> 
but that's our, I guess that's why we learn, so we can enhance and we can add to the meaning. Yeah, great. Now, let's talk about matzah. Oh, this is another beautiful, this is another beautiful teaching. So matzah, I'm just going to read the English because I can see already the time factor. No, I'm going to read the Hebrew and you have the English. I think it's important to hear the Hebrew. Okay. Matzah zo sh'anu ochlim. Al shuma, al shum shalo hispik b'tzekam shel avotenu lahachmitz. Ad shenigla alehem melech malachei hamalachim. Hakadosh baruch hu uga'alam. Shen'ema, and again, brings the pasuk from the book of Exodus, same chapter, you'd bet. Vayofu et habatzek, asher hotziu mimitzrayim, ugot matzot, kilo chametz, ki gorshu mimitzrayim, velo yachlu lehitmamea, vegam tzeda lo asulehem. We see the word lehitmamea, and that means to tarry, to kind of wait. So let's see, according to Rav, this is another commentary from Rav um, Harlap, who who taught us that teaching about Pakod Bakadati. So I I picked this teaching in the in the Haggadah of Rav Cook because it reinforces the Pakod Bakadati, which I think is just such a profound insight insight into our own personal redemption. This is what he says. At the conclusion of the Egyptian exile, the children of Israel felt they could not remain in Egypt even a moment longer. And as one of you so eloquently, insightfully shared, because if we did, we would have never left. This is the sign, Pakod Pakadati, I have surely remembered, that was transmitted to them from Yaakov and Yosef. The double language signifies that the true Redeemer will reveal the will of the divine remembrance above and also arouse in Israel below the will to quit exile. So this is now probing that Pakod Pakadati a little bit further into his explanation of Matzah. Now the second remembrance is for us to will, to really will, to quit exile. This will also be the sign of the future redemption. All Israel will feel that their place is no longer in exile and that they have no alternative but to enter Eretz Yisrael. So the question is, what does his commentary explain? What is his commentary actually explaining? Relative to matzah. He he yes he uses the phrase pakod pakadati, but how does that reference the pasuk? The pasuk we always have to go back to the pasuk. To any commentary must be anchored in the pasuk. Even the wildest wildest interpretation still has to go back to the pasuk. So the pasuk mentions that the bread did not the dough did not ferment because we were driven out of Egypt and we could not lehit mamea. Lehit mamea is to wait. You know, like when you're making challah, so you make the dough and you let it sit. You put the cloth over it, the dish towel, whatever it is you use, and you let it sit. And then you go about other, whatever it is you're doing in your home, and then you come back and it has risen. We didn't have time for that. So why didn't we have time for that? That's really what the that's really what he's teaching through the Pakod Pakadati. What was our rush? Yeah, it's what just, you couldn't hear it. Brock just said what was I didn't, actually, actually I didn't hear it. I didn't hear it. Could you repeat? said because we were being chased. That's oh. what the 
That's like the Ten Commandments. Movie. Right. That's <laughs> like, you know, you got to go because you're being chased. <clears throat> so I ask you, and this is... That their inner pressure, that inner, that inner pressure to not be there anymore. I know, somehow it's, it's tying in for me with the word Terry. Okay, the, the word, the word lehitmamea means that we would have hesitated because we were waiting for something, we would wait for something else. So the Pasuk says that, well, we were chased out. But I challenge that. I challenge that simple idea that the reason we had to leave in haste was because the Egyptians were chasing us out. Actually, they were really urging us to leave, like, just please, just go. Go already, just go. However, the Pakod Pakadati, what Rav Chalap here, I'm assuming, I would think, he learned this from, from I mean, he was one of the prominent students of Rav Cook. This is really Rav Cook teaching. At that moment, even when we were being chased out, we still could have had doubt. We still could have had doubt. Where does the doubt come from? Doubt comes from fear. Where does fear come from? Ego. Ego produces fear-based behavior. Metaphorically, what is chametz? Chametz is the ego. Chametz is what allows the dough to rise without adding any content. So matzah is egoless bread. Matzah is bread without fear. Once we got it through this hashra'at hashechinah, through this indwelling of the shechinah that passed into each of our homes, we knew we're, we're going. That's it. No more thinking, no more talking, no more groaning, no more. It's time to just go. That's matzah because it has no content to it other than its essence. It has no ego. It has no, and I say no content because really it had only content. It didn't have the deception of more content, which would be the fear, which would be the doubt. So once again, there, there is, a, is a deeper insight into the importance of eating matzah. Not because we were slaves, and that's what, that is what slaves ate, because slaves never had time to let their dough rise. It's that we didn't have time for our egos to rise. We knew this was the moment. So how does that connect to Pakod Bakadati? Oh, because Pakod Bakadati, this is another explanation of Pakod Bakadati instead of how he taught earlier that there were two remembrances, meaning God will remember and we will remember. He says here that the double language signifies that the true Redeemer will reveal the will of the divine remembrance above and also arouse in Israel below the will to leave, the will to quit exile. Like, we experienced a sense of free will here. I am willing to no longer be a slave. It's not that I'm longing to recapture what was in my past. This was not the moment of longing. This was the moment of I'm making a decision. And my decision is I'm leaving right now. Yeah, it's interesting the word willing. I will it. I'm not going to be a slave. Yes, yes. That's the power here. That's the power. And that's the content. That's the tochen in the matzah. So, of course, once you will to do something, it's like I just, a friend of mine here in Yerushalayim, we were just talking about, believe it or not, we were talking about skydiving. (laughs) And uh, this is actually one of my dreams to one day skydive to jump out of a plane. And she said that a friend of hers just did this. And when you skydive, I think it's also the same in the U.S., but in Israel, that according to the law, that you have, you're attached to the teacher, but the teacher is behind you. I always thought the teacher was in front of you. So as her friend explained it, there I was. My legs were dangling out of the plane. I felt my teacher behind me, and it was the moment. This was the moment. <laughs> and it just happened. It just happened. And she jumped. That's what this is. That's what this is. Pure 
pure matzah. No ego, no fear, <laughs> no doubt. And of course, she said it was incredibly exhilarating and one of the key moments of her life to be able to fly through the sky. And But that that captures what it's like at times in our lives when we are committed to our journeys. It's time. It's time to just do it. And don't look back. <laughs> That's the power of matzah because matzah is 100% tochen. It's 100% content. Isn't that just beautiful? <laughs> and even today, if if um, one speaks to people who have made Aliyah, like he concludes that, you know, this, of course, this was being taught. This comes from a book that was published in 1953. Now, Rav Cook passed away in 1935, but Rav Harlop lived past then. And he published this in his commentary, which is part of Rav Cook's commentary on the Haggadah Shal Pesach in 1953. So there's always that illusion now, always, in all, so much of Rav Cook's teachings, that extra layer or other layer of Zionism, religious Zionism, making Aliyah, so what he says here is when people feel that they have no alternative but to enter Eretz Yisrael. He's talking in 19, like he's saying now. And many, many olim from all parts of the world, whether it's Ethiopia or Montreal or Seattle, <clears throat> reach a point, that's it. I'm making Aliyah. It could be after trips, after visits, after discussions, after ups and downs. I'm doing it. And just do it. So it's interesting, too, to see his the influence that Rav Cook had on him, that he would conclude the commentary with that sentence, mentioning coming into Eretz Yisrael. <clears throat> okay, and now we move to Maurah. Tomorrow, and we think we all know what this is about, just the way we all thought we knew what Pesach and Matzah was about. Well, we did. This is just a different understanding, a deeper understanding. And you can see in three, referencing all three, it's always Al Shuma. For what? Why do we eat the Maror on Pesach? Al Shum Shemeroru Hamitzriim et Chaye Abotenu Bunitzrayim. Because we, they embittered our lives. The Egyptians embittered our lives. Again, going back to a pasuk, this time in the beginning of Shemot, in the very beginning. And that's where we see the carpus, which we talked about many weeks ago. So you see here the word Maror is in the actual Pasuk. That's the Peshat meaning. So we're eating the Maror because the verse said that the Egyptians embittered our lives. So let's see what another commentator, a student of Rav Cook. This is from Rav Yitzchak Arieli. Now he lived he he was born in Yerushalayim. Actually, he was born in the old city. And he had a very close relationship with Rav Cook. Uh, and when Rav Cook came to Yerushalayim, I don't know if you recall, but I mentioned that he first came to Yafo. He was there for 10 years, then went back to Europe, had to stay there during World War One. Then when he came back in 1921, he came to Yerushalayim. And that's when he met Rav Ariely. And they became very close and Rav Arielli was a student of his. He also, as I put down in the text there, he was awarded the esteemed Israel Prize in rabbinic literature. He passed away in 1974. So this is his insight 
Has anyone ever wondered about the order? <laughs> well, here's your answer. Shint, Maror, Proceed, Pesach, and Matzah. Seemingly, the chronological order has been reversed. Maror, which is the bitterness of the bondage, preceded Matzah, which is the symbol of the freedom. Actually, it preceded it in the in the verse in the in the Chumash because this verse was from Shmot, cha- Book of Exodus, Chapter One, where the mentioning of the Matzah, why we would have to eat it, was in Chapter Twelve. So even in the Chumash, the Maror precedes the Matzah and Pesach. So why why would we have Maror after Matzah? In fact, according to this. According to the Rambam, in his Mishnah Torah, under Hil- in Hilchot Chametzu Matzah, he does have Maror preceding Matzah. So that's how the Rambam actually wrote in his book of his codification of Jewish law, which the rabbis today do not paskin by. It preceded the Shulchan Aruch, but it's still a very valued, very highly regarded one of our key texts in learning the development of Jewish law. And there, the Rambam says, in fact, you do have Marah before Matzah. So the idea, and this is one sentence, this is one sentence, and it is so powerful. So I ask you to really open your hearts and really now identify this with your own journeys. The idea is that after the redemption came, they began in retrospect to feel the bitter taste of the exile. Wow. Much of my journey to freedom... really was about healing the brokenness I was only able to feel after the transition. To be able to go back in my childhood, in my adult, young adulthood, adolescence, young adulthood, adulthood, and replay that out and re-experience it as a healed person, oh my gosh, it was so much more painful. So much more painful. So much more bitter. This is what he's saying. To really experience the bitterness of enslavement, one has to be free. Because when you're in the middle of it, it is never as bad as it will seem to be when you re-experience it once you're free, according to, according to this understanding. Because while you're experiencing it, you just have to keep going. Yes, surviving. While while you're experiencing it, that's what you're doing. You're experiencing it. You're not thinking about it. You have to keep going on. You have to keep surviving. It's only afterwards, and you can look back and say, oh my gosh, that was my life? That was my life? And then you can cry with with the bitterness that each one of us felt we had to survive through and we had to live through and experience. It's not, it's no different than PTSD that a lot of our servicemen and women are Could you just repeat that a little bit louder? That's mm. it's, it's very similar to uh, PTSD, which is the, the syndrome that our servicemen and women experience after war. Yes, yes. They hold it together while they're there, and then they come back from war, and they, if they are working on those issues, they, they can oftentimes fall apart. Oh, so, so true. So true. So true. <clears throat> I want to bless all of you. I want to bless all of you. Not that you feel root. I don't want to bless anybody that they feel bitterness. And bless me back that I don't have to feel bitterness. But what I do bless you is that... When you do experience the feeling of bitterness, know that that's part of your healing and being a free person. 
See it as a dimension, as a component of really being free. And on that note, I'm going to say Lehitraot, and we'll pick up next week. Thank you so much, all of you. Thank you for downloading this podcast. For more original Torah content, visit almad.pardes.org.